Good morning. It's great to see all of you this morning. So here we are. You've hung in there. We're coming to part three of our our short series on the image of God, how that pertains to us, how we're supposed to understand that, how it ties into the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we're in the broader context of a, a, a series on the Holy Spirit this year. So, we've covered a lot. We've got a lot more to cover, so let's do this. For everyone's brain sake, we're going to do a short little recap of where we've been. So, if you've been with me so far, this is the audience participation part of the of the this sermon here. So, According to Genesis chapter 1, all humans, all humanity is created what? In the image of God, right? We are in God's image. Contrast that with what the New Testament says about Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is not in God's image. He what? Is God. Oh my gosh. Props to you all. We're, we're there. He is God's image. And as such... We are, according to, well, let's see, there's Colossians 3, Romans 8, and 2 Corinthians 3. We are being, I'll give you the first one, renewed. And what's the other ones? Conformed. And the last one? Transformed. Into the image of God, which is Jesus. So the image of God is not about an ability that we possess. It's not about any way that we are currently like God or unlike the rest of creation, unlike the animals, it is about God's unique intentions for us as humans, both individually and corporately. When God created man in His image, He created all of us corporately for a goal. And that goal is that God intends for us to be connected with Him in a unique way, which we are just by being image bearers, but God also intends that we reflect Him. So it's about both connection and reflection. Connection has been undamaged. We are still connected to God. We are still image bearers because God's intentions for us and what we should be haven't changed. Therefore, the image of God in us hasn't changed. But our capacity to reflect what God intends for us has been seriously damaged by sin. So on Wednesday, we talked about sin and its role in that process. And so one of the biggest things that we we mentioned there that is sort of a... I mean, it's there in the Scriptures, but maybe not something that we've taken time to consider. I certainly hadn't until recently, is that, yes, we are in God's image, but God's image is not, according to Scripture, the only image that you and I are in. That was a revelation for me when I first thought about that and, and, and tried to understand that. Because if you look at Genesis 5.3, when Adam ha, uh, begat or had Seth, it says that he created Seth according to his own likeness and in his image, Adam's image. Now this is after the fall. Meaning that Seth, because he inherited the image of Adam, his earthly father, he also inherited the weakness, the proclivity to sin that his father had because of the fall. So while we are in the image of God because we are humans, God has created us in His image, we also are in the image of our earthly fathers. Essentially, we are also in the image of Adam. 
And that's a problem because these images are in tension with one another. They are in constant conflict with one another. The image of Adam, like Adam himself, wants autonomy from God, wants independence from God, and it will take it by any means necessary, just like in the garden. But the problem is, in trying to gain autonomy, in trying to gain freedom from God, we became slaves. We lost the very freedom we were trying to achieve. And so now, God intends us to reflect Him in certain ways, as far as humans are able to reflect the attributes and characteristics of God. But sin has rendered us incapable of reflecting those in all the ways that God intended. We are now unable to achieve God's intentions for us. That's a bad spot to be in. So what are we to do about that? Well, the answer is nothing. There is nothing that we are to do about that. We are incapable. Full stop. Period. That's the end of the line. Let that sink in. It should be pretty depressing, this idea that we now can do nothing to become who God created us to be. But God in His mercy has made a way for us to regain our ability to reflect God in these ways. So on Wednesday we talked about how in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, and let's hop over there real quick. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 21. Ephesians four twenty-one. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which is the likeness of God, uh, which in the likeness of God, excuse me, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Jesus has become sin, nailed it to the cross. Jesus has removed the barrier of sin that stands in the way of us being what God intended us to be. And so what the Scripture says, what Paul teaches here, is that in sin, when we were in the image of Adam, we inherited Adam's weakness. We inherited Adam's inability to reflect God in the ways that God intended. And what that means is now Christ has come And Christ has, essentially, He's lived the human life the way that God always intended for all of us to live the human life. Free from sin and fully reflecting of God insofar as a human can. In so doing, He has allowed us a way of putting off the old way of being human, the way that Adam was human, so that we can put on a new way of being human. That is to say, Christ. So it's this language of taking off or putting on a new set of clothes. It's not, we're not stitching up or putting patches on the old clothes. We're getting rid of the old clothes. We're putting on something new. You and I have two ways now, as Christians, that we can choose to be human. We can either live like Adam lived as a human, or we can live like Christ lived as a human. Those are our options. So... That's our recap. 
That brings us to here. So the question then is, so if those are our options, if this is what God has called us to be, if this is what Christ has done for us, then how do we do it? How does that all work? How do I actually begin this process of reflecting God in all the ways that God has intended for me to do so? Let's go to 2 Corinthians to start to get the answer to this question. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to look at a little bit broader context than what we've looked at in this passage before. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're going to start in verse 7. And the idea here is that there is something that is very closely related to the image in Scripture that we haven't really talked about yet. And that is the idea of glory. So I want you to, to keep an eye out for references or, uh, or mentions of glory as we read through this passage because it's closely connected with the image. So here's what Paul is writing in chapter 3, starting in verse 7. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones... Does anyone know what that's referencing? What does that sound like? Letters engraved on stones. Ten Commandments. All right, we're there. The, and he calls it the ministry of death, which if you read Romans and Galatians, is exactly what he said. The law cannot bring life. The law kills. But he says this about the law. The ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory. There's an aspect of glory to the Ten Commandments. So that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? So Paul's making this interesting point. He's saying, listen, the purpose of the law was never to save. In fact, it was to demonstrate to us that under our own human effort, because of the weakness, because of the image of Adam that we inherited, we are incapable of reflecting God in the ways that God intended. The Ten Commandments represents the ways that we are to reflect God in the way He intended. No one can keep the law. So the law is a demonstration to us that we, here we are. We are stuck. All it can do is demonstrate that you're stuck. It can't save you. But even that, Paul says, has a sort of glory of its own in this way. Even the idea that we are stuck and need God's help in a way reflects the idea that God intended more for us than what we are currently capable of. And that idea is exactly this idea of glory. That God wants us to reflect Him. So even the idea that we can't do it is sort of an illusion, a hint that there's more for us than, than what we currently experience in this life. So he goes on to say, How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be with even more glory? Verse 8. Now verse 9. For if the ministry of condemnation, the law, has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. In other words, even if the law had some manner of pointing to God, that is completely overshadowed by how much the new way of being human, the, the image of Christ, and the, the way that God intends for us to live as Christians overshadows the law and points even more so to God, to the point where whatever glory it had, it might as well not have any because the comparison is just too great. 
Verse 11, For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. And are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, as being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Paul's saying here that the... The ministry of the law, the Ten Commandments, again, was to point us to the fact that we couldn't do this. But now Christ has come, and there is a new way of being human. In Christ, we are now capable of doing what we were never capable of doing before. Now, that doesn't mean that it's somehow our effort that we, that we come to reflect Christ. Because remember, if it weren't for God's mercy, we would never ever be in a position where we can even recover what we have lost. It is only through the mercy of God and His gracious actions on our behalf, that we are able to have this restored relationship and even come to start reflecting these characteristics and attributes of God. But God's intention and this idea of glory here in this passage is that, yes, the law had a glory of its own, but that glory faded. It never lasted. It was a hint. It was a spark, but it was there and then it was gone. And in order to keep the people from seeing that, Moses hid his face. Because Moses would be in the presence of God and he would catch a glimpse of what God intended, of that relationship as God intended for it to be, and it would change him. But as time went on, that would start to fade away. And he didn't want the people to see that. But God's intention for glory in the life of the Christian is not that it fades, but rather that it only remains and continues to grow stronger. Let's look at another passage related to glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is actually writing in this context about the nature of our glorified bodies that we will have someday. And the idea here is that, again, there are different kinds of glory. It's not all the same kind of thing. So Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 38. But God gives it, speaking of a grain here, he's using an analogy of a seed. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one or one kind. The glory of the earthly is another kind of glory. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. In other words, all these different aspects of creation, they all do what God intended them to do. They reflect God, but they do it differently. They're not all the same. So we shouldn't make these comparisons as if they're all the same, as if one is if the way that God intended for humans to reflect God is somehow the same as which he intended 
any other aspect of creation to reflect God. They're different. Now, back to speaking of the, the bodies. So he gets into verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. For it is sown in dishonor, but it is raised, here's our word, in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So a couple things. Note here, as a side note, we get these weird ideas sometimes about what our bodies, our glorified bodies, will be like. Scripture clearly teaches, as Paul does here, that in heaven one day, when it's all said and done, we will have a body. As humans, God created us as a deep unity of soul and body. We are, as Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians 5, it would feel naked as a human to be one without the other, to be a soul without a body. Because we are, by what we are, intended to be a soul in a body. That is what it means to be human. So you don't have a body. You are a body. Now, that's not all that you are. But in the New Testament, that's the, that's the language that's used here. So Paul's saying, you have a natural body now. It's perishing, it's wearing out, it's corrupting, it's dying. You will someday have a spiritual body that is imperishable, that's fit to last forever, that won't wear out, that won't die. So notice, the opposite in Scripture of a natural body, the bodies we have now, is not an immaterial body. The opposite of a, of, of a body is not to be without a body and have just some unembodied spirit. It's not what the New Testament teaches. There are other worldviews that teach that. The opposite of a natural body is a spiritual body, which is very much a body, physical. It's not unphysical. It's a different kind of body. In any case, that body will have a glory of its own in a way that our bodies now do not. It will reflect God in a way that God always intended humanity to reflect Him in a way that our bodies now do not. And so even our as we are changing in our souls, as we are orienting ourselves toward God, as we are growing in our understanding, as we're growing in how our heart and our will are, uh, are submissive to God and what He wants from us, Paul says there will also come a time where your very body itself will be transformed, and even that will be reoriented toward God in a way that reflects Him. So our whole person, because the New Testament speaks about people as whole persons, our whole being body and soul, will someday be transformed to reflect God in the way in which He ultimately created us and intended for us to be. So it's God's intention for us, His image, but it is Christ to whom we are being conformed. But notice, again, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it is through the Spirit, who Paul calls the Lord, that this, is, that this process is happening. We are being conformed but it is the Spirit who is helping us to do this. And the New Testament in John chapter 14 calls the Spirit our helper. Jesus says, if I don't go, then the helper can't come, right? That's the purpose of having the Spirit is to help us and strengthen us and enable us in this process of coming to reflect God more and more in His image. So how does this happen? There is a spiritual principle... I guess, that we need to first understand. We were created in God's image, and God intends for us to be conformed to that image. 
if we sort of roll that back and make it more general, here's, here's the principle. Human beings were created, always intended, to be conformed to an image. It's part of our purpose. It's part of... It's like a seed is always intended to grow into a tree, right? If it's, an, if it's an acorn, it's always intended to grow into an oak tree. That is part of what it is and what its purpose is. As human beings, God created us to be conformed into an image. Now, God's intention was that that image would be His. But sin has made it possible and warped that intention so that God's image isn't necessarily the image that we may end up actually being conformed to. So go with me to uh, Romans chapter 1. We'll see this illustrated in a few places here in the New Testament and then a few in the Old. Romans chapter 1, Paul is talking about, in this context, just the world and how we have turned away from God. But in verse 21, Paul says, Romans chapter 1, verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became uh, fools and exchanged, here it is, the glory of the incorruptible God, the glory that they were intended to have for an image, another image, in the form of corruptible man, in the birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over to their lusts of their heart and impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. In other words, it is possible for human beings because we are created to reflect and to conform to an image to exchange the image that God intended for us to reflect with any other image. And we see this in the Old Testament. Go with me to uh, Psalm, the book of Psalms. We're going to go to uh, Psalm 135. Psalm 135, verse 18. And in this context, the psalmist is writing about idol worship. And he says this, this is an interesting principle here. Those who make them, those who make idols, will be like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them. Go with me to 2 Kings. Go back backwards. 2 Kings. If you hit Chronicles, keep going. 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 15. 2 Kings 17.15 says this, They rejected his stat- God's statutes and his covenant, which he made with their fathers, and his warnings with which he warned them. And they followed vanity and what? Became vain. They became the thing that they followed after and went after the nations which surrounded them concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to do like. One more passage. Go to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is writing about uh, false idols here as well. Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah 44, verses 17 and 18. Isaiah 44, 17 and 18. 
says this, but the rest of it, this, this man making an idol, he makes, uh, well, so the context here is Isaiah is mocking the idea of false idols. He's saying, how ridiculous is it that a man can take a piece of wood, he can cut it in half, he can take half of that, he can chuck it into a fire to cook his dinner, right? And then, picking up in verse 17, but with the rest of it, he makes it into a god. How ridiculous is that? You use one half to cook your dinner and you're going to turn the other half of this piece of wood into a god? So notice what he says about that. His graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. This piece of wood. Verse 18. They do not know, nor do they understand. For he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see in their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. Now here's a question. In this context, who is they? I thought there was one person making this, group, this image out of a piece of wood. Here's what, the, here's what Isaiah is saying through, through God. A man makes an image. He makes an idol. He falls down and he worships that idol. Now, what can that idol see? Nothing. It's a piece of wood. What can that idol hear? Nothing. It's a piece of wood. How can it... Reason. What understanding does it have? None. Who's they? They is both the idol and the one who worships it. Human beings become like the things they worship. That is the great spiritual principle, and that is the idea that God has rightly intended to be part of images. We are to be conformed to an image. God intended that image to be His, so that as we worship God, we would become more like God. But do you see how twisted it can get? If we worship any other thing, it's part of us. It's part of how we were created to become like the thing that we worship. And so we can't help it. So when we worship anything other than God, we become like the thing that we worship. This is why God hates idolatry. This is why the very first commandment in the Ten Commandments is, you shall have no other gods before me, and what? You shall not make a graven image. An image. We're back to this idea of images. Because God understands that images are dangerous if God doesn't make them. Because human beings are inherently built to become like images. So there are two ways that we can create idols in our lives. And these idols will siphon glory away from God and away from us. The first is sort of the obvious one. is any time people make the image rather than God. But the second is any time that our worship is somehow and in some way directed away from God and toward anything else. Anything else. Anytime either of those things happen... It becomes an image. And this is why when God prohibits images in Exodus chapter 20, in the first of the Ten Commandments, He says, don't make an image. Don't make an image of anything in heaven above or on the earth below, of any creature, of anything. What's in heaven above? Angels, certainly. But what else is in heaven above? Who lives in heaven? God. Don't even make an image of God, God says. Because when you and I make the image... It's doomed to be an idol. Any image that people create, like Adam's image, is fatally flawed. 
It will never be a complete image in the same way that an image that God creates will be a complete image. So God says, don't do it. Don't make images. I already have made one for you. It's me. Worship me and become more like that image. God alone can make images that are not flawed, and He alone is deserving and worthy of our worship. So practically, as Christians... Paul talks in Romans 1 about how people have exchanged one glory for another because they've exchanged the image of God for any other image, really. And that causes us to warp and twist our purpose and become all kinds of things that God never intended for us to be. But as Christians, we can also fall prey to worshiping or following after an image other than the image of God. It's not as if idolatry is only a problem for people who aren't Christians. The difference is we have a choice, right? So here's, here's an analogy that I, I've given the youth before that I think works uh, and is helpful in understanding this idea of the, the, the choice that we have as Christians when it comes to who are we going to follow and how. It's not just knowing what to do, because we, as we read Scripture, and I think we all, as we study and learn, we have a, a, an understanding, and we come to have a greater understanding of what it is that God wants us to do, what it is that we should do. And yet, like Paul says in Romans 7, I don't do it. I know what I'm supposed to do, but I don't always do it. So what is there? There's an aspect of the will that's involved here, too. So let's think about it this way. Let's say that you are on a team called a baseball team. You're playing for your team. You've got your teammates. You've got your coach. Your coach tells you what you should be doing, gives you instructions. You go up to bat. You look to the coach. You get your your sign. Am I going to swing away? Am I going to bunt? What am I going to do? Right? At some point in your career, you get traded. You are now on a different team. So what's new? You have new teammates, but you also have a new coach. And as circumstance would have it, at some point down the line, your new team ends up playing your old team. So you go up to bat. And much to your surprise, both coaches are trying to give you signals. Who do you listen to? Who should you listen to? Your new coach. It would not do you any good to listen to your old coach because at this point your old coach does not want you to succeed there's a really good chance your old coach is trying to sabotage you right what possible reason could you have for listening to your old coach not really any this is the choice as Christians that we have and we do have the choice the process of becoming Renewed in our thinking, of, be, of coming to reflect God in the ways God intended for us to do, of being conformed to Christ, is about the process of us progressively in this life learning to more consistently listen to our new coach and to listen less to our old coach. As you find yourself tempted, as you find yourself falling into old habits, as you find yourself reflecting on sins that you maybe even committed automatically, it's just, it's so deeply in there. You've got a lot of years of listening to your old coach ingrained into you. Sanctification is a process. It's not easy. It's hard. You were made to do hard things, though. And God is saying, listen, I'm not asking you to do this alone. The Spirit of God, my Spirit, is your helper 
He is alongside you. He is with you. And if you will listen, if you will try and quiet your mind and focus on God and read God's Word and come to understand what it is you should do, that I will help you in those moments. I will provide a way of escape so that you can listen to me, to your new coach, because I have the best intentions for you. In fact, I have the only intentions for you that are actually legitimate intentions. That is what the process of sanctification is is about, and it's what it's meant to be. And just as it would be ridiculous for us to continue to listen to sin as Christians, as Paul says it is, this is the idea. We should reorient our thinking, and we should begin to listen to the Spirit, and really try, and again, as we focus on God, as we live life together, we will become more like the thing that we worship. In this case, God. So being conformed to Christ requires our will. We have, to, we have to participate in this. It's not something that passively happens to us. We have to, we have to choose, right? To, to continue in our sanctification. Um, but it also requires our worship of God as, as He deserves. So what that means is a couple things. We all know, listen, we all know if we're introspective what sins we are struggling with. Part of the process of sanctification is to be introspective and to be honest and say, yes, this is part of my life. This is the old way of being human. This is a, this is a leftover from being in the image of Adam, of the weakness and rebellion that I inherited when I was born. But I can choose to put that off. I can choose to follow after Christ, and I can choose to be something new rather than to do that thing. So as we learn that process of walking with Christ, as we study His Word, as we come to church together, as we are encouraged, as we share our giftings that God has given us with one another, things will start to happen. Some of this is just a function of putting in the time. As we put in the time, as we direct our thoughts and attention toward God, we will, again, become more like the image that we focus on. So we will begin to see opportunities to, as Christ did, to practice forgiveness, even when it's hard. This is what Christ did in the ultimate way. And as we do that, we become more like the image. We reflect more of who Christ is. As we are able to show humility and love in the midst of suffering, it's not a natural response, but it is what Christ did. And as we are given opportunities as Christians to be that and to do those things, we reflect who God intended for us to be. As we learn to love justice and seek after the things that are right that we ought to stand up for and say, no, this is wrong, this ought not to be this way in this world, and to take a stand for those things, we become like Christ. As we become like Christ, as Paul says here, our glory, our glory increases. And in Revelation, the glory of the saints is the righteous, our righteous deeds. Again, not that we have done in our own, but that we've been able to do, been enabled to do by the Spirit. As we reflect Christ, our glory increases. And as our glory increases, God's glory increases. Now, why does that happen? Because 
Just like the blueprint that we talked about last week, God has intentions for us. He wants to see us look a certain way. The closer we get to that, the more it brings glory to the one who designed it in the first place, right? The architect gets glory when the building looks exactly like the architect designed it to look, and it's amazing. People can look at that building and look. They, don't, they look at the architect and go, wow, what an amazing thing you had in mind when you designed this building. So as we come to look more and more like what God intended for us to look like, God gets glory. We do too, but this is a glory God designed for us to have. Not all glories are the same, remember? So we glorify God by becoming like Jesus, becoming what he intended for us to be. And that involves us reflecting him as much as we are able. So the Spirit promises to strengthen us in this pursuit. And I want to leave you with one final passage here in Ephesians chapter 3. As we grow, the Spirit promises to be with us, to strengthen us, to encourage us along this, this path. As we, as we think about the idols that we may have in our, life, in our lives, the things that we are giving attention to that only rightfully belong to God, the things that we focus on, that we spend our time on, our talent on, our treasure on, that are not God. And as we choose to turn and walk away from those things and, and reorient ourselves toward God, the Spirit will help us. The Spirit will encourage us and confirm in us that we are doing what God has intended. And you will experience a peace and a sense of meaning and significance and purpose that you can't find in any of these other things because this is the only way that God intended for us to experience that meaning and purpose. So here's, the, here's what all of this builds toward. Ephesians chapter 3. We'll start in verse 8. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. Paul writes, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light that uh, what is the administration of the mystery for all ages uh, that has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places." This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. God had an eternal purpose for humanity that we would come to reflect him. That that is our ultimate purpose. And as we do this in Christ, God's purpose is not only revealed in us, but it's revealed to the rest of the world. So he goes on, verse 9, and to bring, I'm sorry, in verse uh, 12, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. There's that word glory again. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power, 
through His Spirit in the inner man. That's the new man. The new way of being human that He strengthens so that we might actually do this and pursue this. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. God has a wonderful, incomparable plan and purpose for every single one of us. His purpose is that you and I would find our meaning, our greatest significance, in reflecting His attributes, because this is what we were created to be and to do. And the truth is, any other image that we go after, we will become like, because that's what people were created to do. But none of them will give you the meaning and the significance and the purpose that God intended. It is only in God's image that we find that. And as we do that, a couple of things happen. We grow in glory. We find our purpose. As we find our purpose, we glorify God because this is what He intended. We glorify the great architect who designed all of this. But it also shows the world that there is a different way of being human. That you don't have to live your whole life trying to fill a void, trying to fill a sense of meaning and purpose that can never be filled. There's a new way to be human. It is in Christ, and only in Christ. I hope that as we've studied this in the past week together, that you will be challenged about the ways in which you think of yourself, others around you, that you'll be maybe convicted of areas of your life in which we, and I know I'm guilty of this too, have pursued images that are not God's image and in some ways have started to become like the things that you've dedicated your time and your focus to that don't rightly belong to those things but only to God. But I also hope that you will be encouraged. Encouraged to know that, first of all, this is God's great plan and that it is wonderful that through God and through Christ Jesus we can achieve a sense of meaning and purpose that fills us up in a way that we can't even express. And that as even as we struggle sometimes in our sanctification, even as it is hard sometimes to listen to our new coach and not listen to our old, that the promise of God, according to Romans 8.29, is that we will, will, one day be conformed to the image of Christ. That one day we will be conformed in our person and that one day our bodies themselves will be transformed and that we will be all that God intended us to be. What a wonderful story that is. What a wonderful promise that is. I hope that that encourages you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for sharing with us this amazing plan that you have for each one of us.
for all of us together, God, that we would come to reflect who you are. And God, practically, as we sometimes struggle, oftentimes struggle with how to do that, God, we thank you that you have promised us that your spirit will strengthen us, will encourage us, will be a helper to us. So that in times of temptation, in times of need, God, that you will bring to our remembrance what we know to be true. You will bring to our minds and to our hearts what we know is the way of escape. God, you give us the tools to come to reflect you. So God, I pray that you would work on our hearts. That as we go and we think more about this today, that you would convict us in areas of our lives where we have focused on things that, and given attention to things that only rightly uh, belong to you. And that, God, we would turn from those things. That we would pursue you, and in so doing, we would come to look more like you. It is for your glory and for this great purpose that you have created us. We thank you. It is because of Jesus only that we can come to you and thank you without any need for an intermediary. So God, we thank you for the work of Jesus. We thank you for making a way for us to get back what we lost. We love you. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.